it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It's Thursday, February 23rd, 2023. I'm Guy Benson. This is the Guy Benson Show live from New York City for the next couple of programs. Very glad to be back here behind the microphone, back here in the U.S. of A. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast free every day if you can't listen live between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern. That's every weekday. Then we have bonus Benson on the weekends as well. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow me on social media. Personally, at Guy P. Benson, Twitter and Instagram. You can follow the show, lots of bonus conduct, or content rather, at Guy Benson Show on both of those same platforms, Twitter and Instagram. In fact, I just tweeted right before we came on the air a photograph of a very fun experience that I had earlier today. I went to go drop my bags over at my hotel here in New York before coming back and doing the show, and the elevator stopped. And I was stuck in there for almost an hour. Not sure if I was going to make it on the air. I've been overseas since last Friday. All excited to return to the air. So many things to tell you about. I was like, well, I might be stuck in this little box for a while. We'll find out. We'll tell you the whole story, how that got resolved, coming up at the end of the show in our home stretch. In the meantime, here's what we've got for you. Dr. Marty McCary later this hour. Dagan McDowell next hour. Dana Perino, also next hour, and then Howie Kurtz in our final hour. Much, much to get to here on the show. As I mentioned, I've been gone. Thanks to our guest host, by the way, in the interim, Ben Dominich, Harry Hurley, Andy McCarthy yesterday, making his debut, I believe, as a radio host. So that was cool. Appreciate all of those guys filling in. Always by the end of a vacation, itching to get back. And I call this a vacation, and it was one in a number of ways, but it was also a quasi-working and certainly a learning trip for me. Went to Jordan, the nation of Jordan in the Middle East, which has quite an interesting neighborhood, right? They're bordered on the west by Israel, in the south, Saudi Arabia, in the east, Iraq, in the north, Syria. So it's a busy neighborhood. And they occupy a very interesting position in that region geopolitically, wherein the government of Jordan has had a peace deal with the Israelis since the mid-90s. And they have great cooperation between those governments, despite some significant disagreements on some issues like the Palestinian question. They work together a lot. Then you've got a civil war north of Jordan— Everything that's gone on in Iraq in the last 20, 30 years to their east, and then a very wealthy neighbor in Saudi Arabia down south. In fact, there's a city in the south of Jordan called Aqaba, and we 
briefly drove through it on the course of our journey. And at one point in the city of Aqaba, which is right on the Red Sea, you are in Jordan and you can see right over there is Israel and right over there is Egypt. You're looking at three different countries on two different continents. So the vacation portion of the trip was some of the sites that you may have heard of where people typically go when they visit Jordan. Ancient Petra, which is amazing. You might recognize it from the Indiana Jones films. And there were a number of Indiana Jones references and souvenirs and that sort of thing that you could buy. But that was amazing. Then you've got the Dead Sea. I've been to the Dead Sea before on the Israeli side. This was the Jordanian side. Dead Sea that shrinks and gets saltier every single year due to evaporation. And it does wonders. You float like you can't avoid floating because of the salination levels in the water. And then they've got this mud that's good for your skin. We did that. We also went to Wadi Rum, which is the desert, this deep red desert with these amazing rock formations. And many movies apparently have been filmed there, like some Star Wars stuff. I think The Martian was filmed there. They had a whole list. And I've posted a number of photos on my Instagram and on Twitter. I mentioned before, at Guy P. Benson, if you're curious. Really a stunning experience. Now, the learning side of the trip was mostly in Amman, which is the capital city of Jordan. The reason that I was there in the first place, Jordan had been on my list. I have a long list of places that I'd like to go and countries to see and various sites to visit. But you might recall back in November after our elections here in the U.S., I was in London for a few days, maybe about two weeks after our elections. I had been invited to give a speech in London, sort of giving my analysis of the midterm elections to an audience of political consultants from various countries. And while I was there, I met someone who attended one of my talks who was friends with the ambassador of the Jordanian government to the United Kingdom. She said, hey, I'm having this small private dinner with a small group of people, mostly Americans, some Brits, at the ambassador's home. Do you want to come with me? I said, sure. Very nice invitation, a woman named Sophie. So we went to the Jordanian ambassador's residence in London that night, and I sort of hit it off with this guy, Manar Dabas. And he was very smooth, you know, very well-educated, very sophisticated, of course, quite diplomatic. And... By the end of the evening, I said, you know, I've always wanted to visit Jordan, and I want to bump it up my list a little bit. He said, no, you've got to come. You've got to come. And he said, sleep on it, but you should plan a trip to Jordan. So I kind of had one of those YOLO moments. Like, I'm being invited to Jordan by the ambassador of Jordan to the U.K. Maybe I should just do it. So a couple days later, I booked my flights, booked our hotels, and it was like, hey, we're going. And very graciously, this gentleman set up. At my request, and we had talked about it a little bit, a few things that were maybe off the beaten path for your average Western tourist. Like some meetings, I had dinner at the home of a major businessman in Jordan, and the attendees at this dinner were all current and former high-ranking Jordanian officials of various stripes. 
also met with someone in the current government, uh, a high-ranking official, I would say, who works directly for the king on the sort of geopolitical side of things and had an off-the-record conversation with him for well over an hour on the compound of the king's palace. That was quite a security process getting in, by the way. Three different checkpoints. We had to get out of the car, dogs sniffing. And, I mean, it was it was a whole whole production, understandably. King is not terribly popular among radical elements like ISIS. So I did a fair amount of asking questions and trying to learn about the region. I'd been to Israel multiple times. I've been to Turkey. I was born in the Middle East and Saudi Arabia. But this was my first time, certainly as an adult, in an Arab state and a uniquely situated one for the reasons that I've been talking about. And I feel like I learned quite a lot. And at the dinner, I was asking many questions. They were asking me questions. There was, I would say, a spirited debate about Israel for quite a while, which was fun and, and interesting and getting their perspective, which was different than mine, and not backing away from my perspective, but also listening to why they view things differently and having a bit of a give and take and a back and forth. The other thing that I did while I was over there that was extremely I would say impactful and certainly educational for me was a visit to a Syrian refugee camp. I would say it was about an hour's drive from Amman and not far from the Syrian border. And we all know that that whole country has been torn apart by a civil war now for years. In fact, the camp that I went to has been open for over a decade And I had asked the ambassador if I could see at least one of the refugee camps. He had suggested it, and I said I was very, very interested. And he arranged it. I met with the leader of the camp, one of the top sort of police officials assigned to the camp, drove me around. And there were a few of us. I went with Adam, and then there were a few other uh, people who were accompanying us. And, I mean, it's just eye-opening. You know in your mind intellectually— that these camps exist and that this conflict exists and that it's very difficult. Seeing it with your own two eyes, I would say, is a different story. It comes to life, the challenges, I mean, the the challenges being faced by the Jordanians in terms of energy, water, they have well over a million refugees in that country. And I heard different numbers that varied pretty broadly, but a huge percentage of the population right now living within Jordan's borders are refugees. And that presents pressures and challenges to the government in Jordan. Then, of course, they have all the security pressures, right, with extremists, whether it's the remnants of ISIS, that used to be a much bigger problem, al-Qaeda, the refugee crises that continue, their relationship with Israel, I mean, it is a complicated picture over there. And one element of it is the refugee crisis. This camp that I went to called Zatari, as I said, has been there for over a decade. It was both sad, very sad, and inspirational watching these people who are living under such difficult circumstances, and yet they are 
existing. We saw a wedding going on. There are so many children. The large majority of people living in this camp are under the age of 18. There are tens of thousands of kids at this camp attending school. Roughly 82,000 people sleep at this camp every night. It's like, you know, a small city. And in the initial days, it was tense. Then it became more permanent structures. And, I mean, it is in some ways pretty bleak. But it's functioning in its own way. They've got running water. They've got electricity, but really only about eight hours a day of electricity. And we drove around this camp and we learned about what's being done there. And there are signs in various areas of the camp with the American flag, USAID. Our dollars, our taxpayer dollars are going to help these people. And a lot of it is facilitated by the U.N. I am heavily critical of the U.N. in so many ways, and they deserve it. Also, they do some things to help people in populations like this that someone has to do it. It's indispensable work to literally help these people survive. So I guess there are some elements of what the U.N. does that's worthwhile. And I know that some conservatives question foreign aid, and I think it's important to be careful about where we send our foreign aid. But it was interesting and in some ways rewarding to see our dollars being spent in a way that was literally keeping children displaced by war alive. And in school. And that sort of thing. There's an area, because this camp's been open for so long, you see kids running around, like an eight-year-old kid. He or she has lived in this camp their entire life so far. And this is all they've ever known. Their home country has been fled by their parents, right? They're now in, yes, another country, but within the context of refugee camp, it's just, it's hard for me to even fathom. There is a stretch, this big, long street, and I posted some images of it on my Twitter feed a couple days ago, that is sort of nicknamed the Champs-Élysées because one of the initial UN officials who was overseeing the camp was French, and so he mentioned the shopping district famously in Paris. These are little stalls and shops that have sprouted up these businesses, over a 1,000 of them. A lot of the refugees work outside of the camp, and there's a system that they've set up for that. But a lot of them operate little shops. And we walked, we drove and then walked down that street for a while, bought some falafel, which was delicious. We ate it. And just the pride in the faces of the guy cooking the falafel and the cashier. And we were talking about how delicious it was. And these are people making their way in life. Half a world away. And some of the people that I spoke to there, some of the officials said, When the Syrian civil war was top of mind and all over the news, there was a lot of international aid and charitable work and people donating. And they said some of that has dried up because of COVID-19 and then Ukraine. Sort of the world's attention and the eyes of the international community moves on or move on. And yet this is still the hour by hour, day by day, month by month, year by year reality of these people living there. And I mean, it was, it was remarkable to see. I think it's important for Americans to remember that that's happening. I'm grateful that our dollars are helping 
in a tangible way. It was also a reminder, a stark reminder, of how unbelievably blessed and wealthy we are in this country. I think sometimes you sort of get used to your surroundings and completely lose sight of not just historically, but even in present day around the world, how incredibly blessed we are here. And the circumstances under which many, many human beings are living elsewhere. When we come back, because I've got to take a break, one other little thing that I found out and saw at the refugee camp, interesting technological development. I'll tell you about that as soon as we come back. It's The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Fox News Radio On Demand on the Fox News app. Download the app and just click listen. When you swipe left, you can listen to your favorite Fox News talk shows live. Swipe right for the latest Fox News Radio newscasts on demand. Fox News Radio on the Fox News app. Download it today. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. And I'm back in the U.S. from my trip to Jordan. I was talking before the break about my experience at Zatari, which is Syrian refugee camp in the north of Jordan. And we were kilometers away from the Syrian border. One thing that we saw at the camp was one of the supermarkets that they have there, which actually in a lot of ways kind of does feel like you're in a supermarket that's well-stocked. And it's available to the refugees based on a monthly allowance that they get from the UN and various international organizations. It's about 30 bucks per month per person. That is not a lot of money. And to really reduce waste and fraud and abuse, they now have a system where the payment system is done with an iris scan. So there's an account and the purchases are deducted from the account based on your eyes. So I thought that was really innovative and interesting, and we went through the supermarket and saw, you know, the the various available items. As I said, the camp only has about eight hours a day of electricity, but they keep the refrigeration going, of course. And then people also have jobs and cash, and they buy other things other ways. It was just uh, an eye-opening experience for me, and... Uh, one that made me very proud of the people living through tough adversi- uh, adversity and just grateful to live in this country with all the comfort that we have here. We'll be right back. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my name is Chad. <laughs> His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about, Guy Benson. GuyBensonShow.com is our website, podcast free every day. Thanks for being here with us now, Dr. Marty McCary, Fox News contributor, He's a surgeon and professor at Johns Hopkins in the School of Public Health, author of the book, The Price We Pay, at Marty McCary on Twitter. And, Doctor, great to have you back. Great to be with you, Guy. 
I kind of want to bring you on here today to do something of a victory lap, although it's one that's got to be still frustrating for you because some of the things that are finally being fully admitted in the public health community, in the media, these are things that you have been saying loudly, not just for a little while, but for years when it comes to COVID. One of them, probably the most prominent one being the report just recently about natural immunity. And this was written up in The Lancet, and people were saying, oh, well, look at this, natural immunity. If you get COVID and, and you survive COVID, which almost everyone does, that immunity is as good, if not better, than the immunity that comes with vaccines. And, you know, doctor, you and I have been having that exact conversation on this show. You've been all over TV and radio talking till you're blue in the face about this. I was looking at Wall Street Journal columns that you wrote in 2021 about this. And for the longest period of time, you were kind of treated by a lot of people like a pariah or an outcast or someone that shouldn't be listened to, dangerous purveyor of misinformation, or even if they sort of knew that you were right based on the data, it wasn't really what they wanted to talk about in terms of the narrative. And so it was just swept to the side. And now you have these quotes and these headlines like, oh, gee, look at this. And I wonder, is there a satisfaction that you feel at all? Or is it like way too little, too late to even be uh, vindicated this way? Well, I feel in, to some degree, first of all, Guy, thank you. And many doctors believed what I believed, but they were muzzled, intimidated, bullied at their academic institutions. A lot of this has come to light. The amount of secret praise that <clears throat> that I got and Jay Bhattacharya and Vinay Prasad and many people who are speaking about these issues, it's unbelievable because many people felt this way in the medical community but didn't feel comfortable going against this sort of mainstream. I mean, in California, heck, they have like a special court that they've set up to disbar you and take your license away if you disagree with the public health department. Crazy. Luckily, there's an injunction against it. But I feel like we lost. I feel like we fought like heck. We talked till we're blue in the face about these issues. But the kids were still shut out of school. Uh, Toddlers were masked for nearly two years. Natural immunity was ignored. Lives were ruined. There were many mistakes of the pandemic, tremendous major miscalculations. But the ones that are unforgivable were that after the data were crystal clear, they continue to hold on to these anti-scientific policies. Right. And yeah. natural immunity, you know, that, that the big end-all study came out, as you referenced, two weeks ago in The Lancet. They looked at all the studies done. And same thing with the masks, a review with all the studies done, and they showed um, natural immunity was more effective than vaccinated immunity, at least as effective. And the masks had little to no impact, essentially no meaningful uh, difference. All the energy we spent fighting on fighting masks, futile. All that energy. I fought to keep the masks off the kids. People fought to keep those kids' faces covered. All that face covering that we've seen, and it's still going on in some parts of the country, futile. What if they would have spent an ounce of that energy on addressing obesity or 
getting people outdoors and active and addressing mental health, we would have been a lot better. Well, let me just say this, though. In your defense, and to make you maybe a little bit more encouraged and optimistic, a lot of it was futile because there were people who didn't actually care about science or medicine. They cared about politics and agendas. And you weren't going to change the minds of those people. And unfortunately, those people were in charge in a lot of places. And if you want to sort of make it partisan, you don't have to. I will. It's pretty clear the parts of the country where people who claim to worship the science were the most hostile to actually following the science. That's true. And a lot of people, adults and children, were needlessly harmed. Uh, In the middle of already a terrible pandemic that killed a bunch of people, there was even more harm done needless harm inflicted on these people. However, I think because of the work of folks like you and Dr. Bhattacharya and some of the others, Dr. Sapphire, that reality, those truths, that data did break through for a lot of other people who then went out and joined the fight to fight like hell, to use your term, for their own kids, for their own jobs. And there were leaders who were willing to actually listen to you, look at the data, examine it, and then make decisions that were a lot better. So while there were terrible decisions made that harmed an awful lot of people above and beyond what would have happened anyway over the course of the pandemic, I think without folks like you drawing attention to the actual data and leaders like the governor of Florida and others stepping up and actually processing that data and synthesizing it into much better public policy, I think the harm would have been much more widespread than it was. So the futility was true in some places, but I think the truth won out other places, and I think that's something you should be proud of. Well, thank you, and and I am grateful to the people who listened, or at least heard enough where they said, hey, I want to, I want to learn more. When Governor DeSantis reached out to Jay Bhattacharya, and said, you know, what I'm hearing just doesn't make sense. Can you give me your perspective? And they had an open forum of ideas, and the policymakers made the best decision considering everything, not just infection transmission, but education and jobs and poverty and the whole thing, mental health. They made good decisions. Um, you know, I was privileged and still am to be a medical advisor to Governor Yunkin in Virginia. I'm grateful that right. he listened and, and called for to get rid of these mandates. I mean, the number of kids that have gotten myocarditis, many of whom never showed up in a hospital. They just dealt with chest pain at home. And God knows what the long-term consequences are of that inflammation, because you can get scarring after inflammation of the heart. But all these hundreds of thousands of kids in the U.S. who got myocarditis for what? For no good reason. They were never at risk if they were healthy. And this myth out there that is still promoted on NBC News that myocarditis is more common after COVID infection than after the vaccine. No, it's, it's the opposite. You're 20 up to 28 times more likely to get myocarditis after the vaccine than after the infection. And for someone who had the infection, which is, by the way, everybody now, what are we doing vaccinating people? I mean, that, that is the the sad reality of where we are. There were many mistakes in the COVID pandemic, but I just don't understand how when you make 10, 15 major policy errors as a physician, you get promoted to be chief medical advisor to the president. 
you know, thinking that it was the virus was spread on surfaces and not airborne for months, telling people to wash their hands like crazy. Major mistake. Telling people they couldn't visit their dying loved ones. A cruel human rights violation that hospitals impose universally. Closing schools, ignoring natural immunity, Mm -hmm. downplaying therapeutics, uh, not spacing out the doses, which is safer, pushing cloth masks on toddlers, um, vaccine boosters in young people with no data. Um, These are major, major policy errors. And I think the public is hungry for some humility with with a simple apology. You know, they got it really wrong. You know, doctor, on the vaccine, I got vaccinated. I was very happy to get vaccinated. I have not gotten boosted because of the dearth of data that you just referenced. And I think the vaccines made a lot of sense, especially for older people, people with pre-existing conditions who really were at very high risk of dying from COVID, much higher than I was, for example, or, or a younger, healthier person. And in many ways, the vaccine and Operation Warp Speed and all of that was a uh, you know, miraculous achievement. The problem that I always had was the one-size-fits-all requirements and the mandates. And they treated you, if you didn't get vaccinated, like you were some sort of dangerous, selfish freak and you were, you know, going to hurt other people and you couldn't go to dinner in some cities. You couldn't go to, the, you know, uh, to a show or what have you. You couldn't show up for work. You couldn't go to college. And in some places they are still like I see some universities are still saying unless you are fully boosted as a young person, you can't show up to your university. That seems completely crazy, especially in light of everything that we know that you've been shouting about for two years when it comes to natural immunity, which is as good, if not better, than getting vaccinated. They refuse to acknowledge that in the formation of policy. And thankfully, some places finally, very, very belatedly, have been dragged, kicking and screaming away from their dogma. But some places are still clinging to it, which is what I don't understand. And it seems like, you know, you talk about humility. The CDC has barely acknowledge in a serious way some of their mistakes and have tripled down on others. I think that's the frustrating thing. It's like people were held out of school and held out of their jobs, lost their jobs based on not getting vaccinated after getting provable natural immunity, which the people in charge making the decision said wasn't good enough, but the science has shown for a long time was good enough. And it just seems like there's been very little accountability or grappling with some of those realities and and maybe it'll just never happen maybe we've just moved on i don't know well unfortunately unfortunately history is written by the victor and right now you have a, a very elite medical establishment that cancels those that have a different opinion and they're telling their own version of the story the reality is natural immunity beat COVID. that's what beat the pandemic now the vaccine did help for high-risk individuals and downgrading the severity of illness. Didn't stop transmission no. like we originally thought. But it saved lives for sure. Saved lives for sure. So here we are now. All we talk about is the vaccinated and unvaccinated, like an unvaccinated person is some fugitive of the law. And they, and they publicly said, and this came out as sort of the political Democrat elite, that we have to make the lives of the unvaccinated hell. We have to 
test them twice a day at their own expense, is what one White House advisor publicly said. Um, you know, others said we have to make their lives difficult so that they choose to get vaccinated. And the only people who need to get vaccinated now are people who have not had the infection and have not been previously vaccinated. I don't think those people exist. That's a unicorn. Someone in America who's not had COVID and has not been vaccinated, if you find that unicorn, you know, capture it and bring it in for <laughs> testing because this is a non-issue at this point. The issue is, um, are we able to recognize we have an endemic common cold-like virus for which a booster vaccine is going to offer mild transient protection for three months, and then the new variant may evade that immunity anyway? So we have to learn to move on because I have a family member who I'm not sure is ever going to get caught up in school. A little girl um, I'm related to, she fell so far behind with the covering faces and school closures, barely caught up to be able to follow and catch up in school. And then the close school closures came again. I don't know, you know, if she'll ever be able to rebound from that. That is the untold story of the pandemic. What this public policy did to people who are defenseless and to minority and poor communities yep. in the United States. Just robbing people of choices, robbing people of their education, robbing people of their jobs in some cases. By the way, since you talked about face coverings and masks, just very quickly, Brett Stevens in The New York Times has written a column about mask mandates. Here's what he writes, and you, you made a reference to it a moment ago. Quote, the most rigorous and comprehensive analysis of scientific studies conducted on the efficacy of masks for reducing the spread of respiratory illnesses, including COVID-19, was published late last month. Its conclusions, said Tom Jefferson, the Oxford epidemiologist who was its lead author, were unambiguous. There is just no evidence that masks make any difference, he told a journalist. Full stop. But wait, hold on, writes Stevens. What about N95 masks as opposed to lower quality surgical or cloth masks? Quote, makes no difference, none of it. When it comes to the population level benefits of masking, the verdict is in mask mandates were a bust. And he writes, skeptics were furiously mocked as cranks and occasionally censored as misinformers for opposing mandates, but they were right Again, I just can't imagine there's that much satisfaction for being right, given the damage done. But I think it's still important to tell the truth now that the truth is pretty conclusively proven. And it's the opposite of what the most censorious, lecturing, hectoring experts told us for two years plus. <laughs> the irony is the New York Times was one of the biggest propagators of the fear mongering and math mask absolutism that we heard from public health officials. It was sort of like the weapons of mass destruction of our era, where the government just ruled in a certain edict. You know, they gave a dogma. Hey, the science says everyone has to mask in the New York Times without asking any questions. Okay, thank you. And they just broadcast it to the world. Their job is to ask questions. And the New York Times rejected Many op-eds I sent their way, as you know, I wrote an article two years ago in the Wall Street Journal that got a lot of attention titled, The Case Against Masking Children. Many of the media outlets didn't want to hear it 
And the few that did got labeled as, oh, you know, that's they're sort of politically on the right. No, the group of scientists that I talk to regularly where we review the studies in depth, these are the highest level trained scientists in the world. Yeah, but it didn't and matter. I, I mean, that's the point, doctor. It didn't matter. It wasn't about the science. It wasn't about the medicine. It was about control, narrative, politics, tribalism, and a, a lot of harm was done. But the truth matters, which is why we're talking about it with Dr. Marty McCary, our guest on The Guy Benson Show. Doctor, appreciate your time. Thanks so much, Guy. We'll step aside. We'll come right back. It's The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Back on The Guy Benson Show. So I'm pretty sure we spent, what, a few weeks obsessively talking about unidentified objects being shot out of the sky. One of them was not unidentified. We know exactly what it was, and it was a big deal, the Chinese spy balloon. But what about these other three? Big, you know, breaking news and alerts all over the place and press conferences and statements from the president. Wall Street Journal story yesterday. You see this? I'll just read to you. This is the lead paragraph. The U.S. military spent at least $1.5 million to shoot down three airborne objects, which it now believes were likely recreational balloons, defense officials said Wednesday. U.S. also announced on Friday that it had suspended its search for the debris from the three shot down objects. Oh, okay. $1.5 million, okay to shoot down what they believe were likely recreational balloons. That doesn't sound conclusive to me, does it? Several caveats there. Oh, and by the way, we've given up looking for the remains, so we just called that off. So it's over, I guess. Does that fill you with encouragement and confidence? That's just so much weirdness there to me. Another hour coming up. city in the world unconventional talk from a fresh unconventional conservative kai benson show a brand new hour on the guy benson show GuyBensonShow.com. our website podcast is free every single day guy foxnewspodcast.com wherever you get your podcasts follow us social media at guy benson show on Twitter and Instagram. Still to come, Howie Kurtz in the next hour. A couple media controversies to touch on with him. Later this hour here in studio, Dana Perino. We're talking about Secretary Pete. Finally made his way to Ohio. Got dragged there basically against his will after being shamed for weeks. And it didn't go very well for Secretary Pete. We have some audio Talk about the uh, the PR effort there, the communications effort there with Dana Perino coming up in a little while. Fox News alert as we enter our middle hour. The Dow up 111 points at the close today, finishing at 33,156. And with that, we will turn to our next guest. She is here in studio with us, Dagan McDowell, anchor and analyst on FBN, co-host of The Bottom Line with Dagan and Duffy, 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday on Fox Business Network. And Dagan, it is Great to see you, as always. It is so good to see you. I found a toothpick outside on the table outside of your studio, and it is wrapped up. So I thought that this was a perfect little treat for my redneck self that you somebody left out there. A toothpick? Yes. 
Well, you're which welcome. I will not not use while I'm on the radio, but maybe for later. You're welcome for that <laughs> gift, by the way. Although you know what, it does it actually sparks a thought. We were talking off the air. I feel like they could have used that toothpick to take down those balloons, as opposed to four hundred thousand dollar missiles or whatever they did. And look, yes. I am not doing the conspiracy thing here. What I am saying is, and we read from the Wall Street Journal last hour, this two-week massive news story, which started with a real news story, which is the Chinese spying on us with a giant balloon. Then it just kept growing and growing and spiraling because of these additional takedowns. And they were just basically, they said, well, never mind. We think it was probably just recreational balloons and we stopped looking for them. And that's the end of that. I just find it all so weird. Do you think it was just they were politically embarrassed by their handling of the big spy balloon, so they just felt like they had to, for political reasons, blow some other stuff out of the sky? Yes. I think that this is a Joe Biden story, that we did not shoot down a Chinese intelligence dirigible that crossed the entire continental United States, Mm -hmm. gathering intelligence. By the way, China started testing these balloons and floating them in 2018 involving hypersonic missiles and other weapons. This is part of China's preparation for war and invasion of Taiwan. And just probing capacity and that sort of thing. So you don't shoot that down. But now I got to look tough. And you're going to shoot down which are literally like science balloons. science projects are just bl- balloons that people are sending up into the air and tracking and we knew based on just the cockpit audio from one of the F22s that there was no heat signal uh, well we knew there was no heat signal on these objects and one of in the cockpit audio of one I forget which one it was. The plane is approaching the object so fast that it comes up on it so quickly that it it's just an object floating in the sky. So just like a huge overcompensation right. for it's, all the questions I'm gonna, being asked. I'm going to get tough and shoot these things out of the sky. Take because, it down, bow. Right, because I am a weakling who refused to take down a dirigible sent by communist China that's actually collecting intelligence on the whole of the nation, Mm. including um, where we store ICBMs. Uh, That's what it was. And Biden said as much when he came out and talked about it. He basically did. Yeah. He said that there were commercial objects. What a a conclusion to that drama, multi-week drama. But that's that's what Biden – and company have done for two years, they have literally set money on fire. Or we have, we have just, we've shot money into the sky Mm -hmm. for nothing. And we've got nothing in return. And we're not getting, we're not getting these balloons back. They just stop looking for them. They're like, yeah, you know what? Uh, We're calling off the search. We can, we can just uh, privately grieve the loss of these balloons and we've given up the search. They're, they, they fell on a watery, icy grave somewhere and we're pretty sure they were just balloons and so stop worrying about it. Okay, so that's topic one for Dagan McDowell. Topic two, we're just going to bounce around here if that's okay. Uh, topic two, I look here at the screens 
in our studio, and you've got Fox News Channel and our competitors on this uh, Murdoch trial. And there's a cross-examination happening right now, the accused double murderer, and he's accused of so many crimes, but this is the trial for the uh, double murder of his wife and his son. Uh, He's taken the stand in his own defense, which is sometimes unusual, kind of a risky thing, but in this made-for-TV drama, and you've got all sorts of documentaries and shows about this and commentary, of course this guy was going to take the stand, and he had his defense attorney's questioned him earlier. Now the prosecution is taking a run at him. I'm always sort of interested to see what local crime stories take on a life of their own and become enough of a national news, a national news story where all the cable networks are, you know, taking at least the cross-examination live. I will admit I knew nothing about the story until it came up on the air a few weeks ago. Then I binge-watched the HBO doc Mm-hmm. And now I'm sort of invested. I think he's guilty of sin. I've followed some of the evidence. It seems like it's pretty damning for him. But what, what do you make of this whole thing, Dagan, and, and the fact that it's now, I mean, across the board as we speak live, the top story? I know a lot about the family and the case and what blew this story up. And to give a incredible journalist credit where it's due and due almost exclusively – a young woman uh, named Mandy Matney in down in Charleston or down where the Murdoch family lives. She started doing, she works for a local organization called Fitz News, and she started a podcast called The Murdoch Murders. And she, she was, and she does it with her husband and another woman. And she Once the story of these murders broke, she has always been solely focused on the corruption in the low country Mm. in this part of South Carolina, and particularly this family, that they have been in control of the solicitor's office, which is essentially like the district attorney, Mm -hmm. that for over 100 years, it goes back to – Alec Murdoch's father, grandfather, and great-grandfather. So they controlled the the local – they were the district attorney, but then they also had this law firm that was notorious for – they were notorious plaintiff's attorneys or suing major corporations. So – and they had a lock on law enforcement. All of the cops or most of the cops in the whole county were in their pocket. And they got away, well, with murder as a family for years. And so as soon as this happened, her instincts were, this is going to get swept under the rug. Just like uh, Mallory Beach uh, getting killed by Paul Murdoch, who was murdered allegedly by his father. That's what his father's on trial for. That Paul Murdoch, Mallory Beach's death in that boat crash, that was swept under the rug. Um, there's another very suspicious there's death. The, Actually, well, more than one. There's more than one. There's like there was three a, or four. It's crazy. There was a young man who was found dead in the middle of a road. Yep. There was the housekeeper, housekeeper yep. Satterfield was her last name, who died at their home, one of their homes. But Mandy Matney and the podcast that she was doing and the attention that she gave this family. But this is the, you know what? 
these people are the reason I left the South. <laughs> this type of family where you have the power, you abuse the power, and you get away with murder over and over and over again. And people who don't have money and control and they suffer and they suffer and they suffer. And it's countywide and sometimes it's statewide. And maybe it all ends in this courtroom. Well, I mean, it's you've got the wife and the kid dead. The other kid, not on the run, but, you know, off trying to live a, a very quiet life for various reasons. What if about you, all the people he stole money from? That's the other thing. I mean, all these, all it, these people he got settlements for, people... People who were injured in automobile accidents or quadriplegics or and he paraplegics kept the and he kept the money from so, I mean, these people. I feel like this guy is not going to walk free ever for the rest of his life, even if he gets off on these murders. But I, I don't know if he gets off on the murders. I'll tell you two mistakes on the stand that those jurors are going to pick up on. Being from the South, and I'm going to get real country. Okay. Because I grew up – I didn't go up, grew up in the low country in South Carolina. So make it very but simple for, for a city slicker like yours truly to understand. Dyed his hair out of a box in the bathroom and did a bad job. So his hair was white looking, and now it's orange. Mm. So he's trying to – I don't know what he was doing, but it's orange and it's screwed up looking, number one. And any – like – the, any women on that jury are going, you don't know some beautician who has a business in her garage who can dye your hair if you're going to dye it, number one. Number two, he keeps referring to his son, Paul, as Paul, and it is so affected. It is such a put-on that – and he says it over and over and over again. You call your granddaddy Paul, and it just seems like he's doing it like for to, sympathy. Yeah, to be folksy and, and— He's doing it for sympathy, referring to his dead son, who he's accused of murdering, to elicit some feeling from the jury. And I guarantee you, they ain't buying it. This, are, that's my read on This it. is a trial about death, and Dagan McDowell sees another dying scandal involving the accused hair. And this, you think the, this is something that the that – the, It just looks weird. I, I did not – maybe it's been like that the whole trial. I didn't notice it. It could be the lighting now that he's on the witness stand. But it's eight ways screwed up. Then, of course, there's like, you know – the evidence. Uh, well, and by the way, I said he could go into somebody's garage and get it dyed, but I, he he's behind bars, so he di- clearly did it. In also, the sink. who wants who wants to welcome him into their house at this point? Yeah, but he's he's behind bars, so he's like, clearly what, what did might it in happen. The <laughs> but don't just why'd you try to dye your hair in the sink in the Hoosgale? Topic three with Dagan McDowell. Soundbite. This was, I believe, yesterday in Maryland. Our esteemed vice president. Mm-hmm was talking about all the hard work she and Joe are doing for the country and for the economy and how grateful we should be, for example, for the reasons outlined in Cut 32. Every day, Joe Biden and I talk about and work together with our partners, like former leader Hoyer, current leader Hoyer, um, to lower the cost for the people of our nation, because you are a leader, for working families, 
We have reduced heating and electricity bills. So folks have more money in their pocket to buy things like school supplies, replace the dishwasher, or take a family vacation. They've re- what, what does she say here? They have reduced heating and electricity bills so folks have more money in their pockets. Um, no, you didn't. Fact check? I got it. Electricity is up 23.6% since Biden took office. <laughs> electricity costs rose less than 5% during the entirety of Donald Trump's four years in office. So what's the name of the book? The Audacity of Hope? Mm -hmm. This is the audacity of a dope. She always talks to people like she's talking to children. She does, including Steny Hoyer, because you are a leader. Don't you remember when she was talking about who of us grew up with our parents talking about lines of credit. She was talking to small business owners, and she always talks to people like they're stupid. Mm-hmm. It's not the folks are stupid. Mm. I could sit here and go through 50 statistics about how costs have soared simply because of their policies. It's like crazy gaslighting. Like we all know, we all know what our bills are and that they're up. And she's trying to say, oh, we've, we've lowered, we've reduced heating and electricity bills so folks have more money in their pocket like none of that is true and by the way the more money that we have in our pocket to the extent that we do is worth a lot less in terms of buying power because of the inflation well speaking of that real so inflation adjusted disposable personal income last year dropped by 6.2 percent that's the most on record do you know how difficult it is to foul up an economy so spectacularly the way that Biden and Harris have done in just a two-year period? Well, you can only just say this. We did it, Joe. We did it, Joe. We did it, Joe. Dagan McDowell, I want to keep going, but we're out of time. We got to take this break. Great to see you. Don't buy, dye your hair out of a box, whether you're in prison or not. I intend to do none of the things okay. that you just mentioned. Dagan McDowell will be watching tonight, the bottom line, 6 p.m., Thank Fox you. Business Network. See you soon. We'll be right back. We're changing people's lives. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. On the Guy Benson Show, Dana Perino coming up in the next segment. We'll be talking about Secretary Pete Buttigieg and his trip to East Palestine, Ohio. Finally showed up, although he claimed today that they've been there since the earliest hours, cut 19. That's why we've been here from the first hours of the incident as an administration. Well, who's the we there? Oh, the royal we. He certainly hasn't. He ignored this thing for as long as he could. Then the criticism built. Then he finally started tweeting and talking about it, which he hadn't been doing for like days, a week and a half of nothing from this guy. And then the critics basically shamed him into saying something. Then the calls increased for him to go. And just about three weeks after the fact, he finally went. And he's trying to pretend like, oh, we wanted to keep, you know, a distance to make sure that it was constructive. This was about politics and political pressure. His press secretary was not happy with some of the questions he was getting. 
That didn't look good. Back in D.C., before he left, a reporter asked him a question. He was like, leave me alone. I'm on personal time or whatever that was. And then at a press conference today, very much unlike Pete, the algorithm malfunction cut 16. Both information and misinformation injected into this situation. None of which is to the benefit of the community uh, when it comes to that misinformation. So I think, so I lost my train of thought. Um, We all lose our trains of thought. He rarely does. Train of thought, really? That's an unfortunate turn of phrase, given the circumstances. Dana Perino's take on all of this straight ahead. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Halfway through this Thursday edition of the Guy Benson Show. Thanks for being here. Very pleased to be back in the saddle after some time off overseas. We'll talk more about that in the days to come. GuyBensonShow.com, our website, podcast always free. And joining us here in studio in New York is Dana Perino, co-anchor of America's Newsroom, also co-host of The Five, which she'll be running off to do in a matter of mere minutes. Best-selling author, all the things. Dana, it's well, great I to see you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks. All right. I just briefly before this segment played some sound of Secretary Pete Buttigieg finally in East Palestine, Ohio, reacting to the derailment of this train that happened almost three weeks ago. And it just strikes me as nothing but reactive politics from this administration from the top down when it comes to this disaster. And I get some people are criticizing for political reasons, and you can point to this hypocrisy or that hypocrisy, but it just feels like they have handled this very poorly. It's interesting. I was just thinking back as you were talking. I know you're younger than me, but do you remember the Johnson & Johnson cyanide disaster? No. Okay. So in the 80s, um, all of a sudden, some people were dying after they'd taken Tylenol. I was like, what in the world's going on? And it turns out that some criminal had been putting cyanide pills in the Tylenol bottles. I'm fascinated you don't know this story. It's ringing ringing a bell now. So the public relations response to that crisis is considered the gold standard for crisis communications. And Harold Burson of Burson Marsteller, he was the he's he just recently died about a year ago, uh, in his late nineties. Um, he was the PR person that guided Johnson and Johnson through that. And what was the answer? Well, it was be transparent as possible, do the right thing. And what did they do? They pulled all the Tylenol off the shelves all across America until they could figure out what was going wrong. And. And to this day, I don't, I don't believe they ever caught uh, whoever was putting the cyanide in, in the bottles. I think three people died. And the reason I bring that up is that any communicator, maybe he's, maybe he's too young and he doesn't know this story, but that is just the gold standard. You do the, the right thing immediately and you deal with the politics of it later because good policy is good politics. Mm-hmm. The other thing that's interesting to me is that he's vaunted as this great – new democratic leader right he's the new it guy and his instincts are so bad so the administration if you call the white house and you say we'd love to have a guest on health and human services issue tomorrow they'll say great we'll send pete Buttigieg to you and he was their go-to person for every single thing georgia voting rights remember when that law was passed and the entire administration fanned out 
And they had a full court press to make sure that everybody knew that that was Jim Crow 2.0, even though it was not. Yeah, it was a lie. So you, when they want to respond quickly and aggressively and thoroughly, they can and they do. And on this one, his instincts did not tell him, I need to get there. Not even just for political reasons, because it's the right thing to do. And now it's three weeks to the day tomorrow. It looks like he got pushed into it. He of seems he did. rattled on the out in public. Yes. They pushed away the press yesterday. And if you're going to go this late, you just go and you take all your lumps. Okay. Because you, he already said, I wish I had you know, maybe gone sooner. Like He's kind of mealy-mouthed about it. But if you're going to go, you just go and you take your lumps. Because now the story is you came and you're mad that you have to be here. That's how it looks. Yep. And he's got you know the hard hat and he's walking around and doing the tour. This is almost three weeks later. It just feels like it was all politics the whole time. Mm-hmm. And the proof of that is the response, if you want to call it that on substance, is – they're blaming Republicans and saying, oh, well, Trump did this and, and we can get into the weeds. The blame shifting also is factually wrong. Right. But that's what they're attempting. It's the Republicans fault. It's Trump's fault. Uh, you know, Pete saying, well, it's Republicans wanted to deregulate and all this mm-hmm. stuff. It's just sort of flailing. They ignored it for 10 days completely or Pete did for 10 days. Now, totally. This is a rare situation in which a natural disaster, not excuse me, not natural disaster, a man-made disaster is getting more coverage three weeks after the original event than it did originally. Now, go back to 2005, August 28th, 29th, 2005. It's Hurricane Katrina. We know now because President Bush wrote a book and he walked through with everybody the decisions that he made during Hurricane Katrina and why he made them. And a lot of that blame, and even Oprah said this, had to do with the local and state leadership, the mayor, Mayor Nagin, mm-hmm. and the governor, Blanco. Kathleen Blanco. But imagine if President Bush, in the middle of everybody de- reeling from this horrible natural disaster that then led to flooding when the levees failed, had said, well, too bad they didn't listen to me. I told them that they should evacuate, yeah, the, the and they did The Democrats, the Democrats did this, did this. Imagine, especially if he was imagine. factually wrong. They would have been Correct. all over him right. twice like, over. We had... Every right in the world to point out the facts. But you know who told us not to do that? George W. Bush himself. Hmm. And when those two, Nagan and Blanco, when we get Air Force One there, Nagan and Blanco are fighting. They're fighting. They will not accept federal help because they don't want to look weak. Okay. So they're fighting on the plane. And the president is there with them. He says, look, I'll take all the blame. Just let me let the National Guard, let me let the federal response happen here. And that's how that all ended up. That's the exact opposite of what you have here. Mm. They waited and waited. They waited till the press looked like they're pushing them into it. They waited until President Trump went. Now, if I thought today that they got there and said, okay, now we're here to do the right thing, it would be one thing. Now, James Freeman of the Wall Street Journal wrote an interesting piece yesterday, and he had some good things to say about the instincts of Michael Reagan. Now, he's Biden's person at the EPA. He's not in charge of the federal response. He's in charge now of the cleanup that, that has been changed. But he was willing to go, but the White House didn't give him the go-ahead because Pete was supposed to be the one in charge. And how'd that go? I mean, 20 days later, constantly playing catch-up, constantly playing politics on this. You wonder 
was this the type of community that they're less invested in politically so it took so long? I can understand the criticisms flowing. National Review has a really good, in-depth, thorough piece about all of the changes and proposals and solutions that Buttigieg is now putting forward and how it's just a rehash of previous progressive stuff that has nothing to do with the crash itself, wouldn't have prevented. Oh, I haven't seen it's, that yet. It's really good. I strongly okay. recommend it. And, it. and it's granular in detail. Uh-huh. It's not just, you know, a They're few. They're doing some good stuff over at National Review. I, I agree. And this piece, I'm uh-huh. linking to it tomorrow. Who wrote that? I'll get you the byline in the commercial break. I'm writing about it and linking to it tomorrow at townhall.com as well if you want to see it, Dana. I will. The other thing is since you mentioned Trump, I am often critical of Trump on this show. I've made it very clear I don't want him to be the Republican nominee for president in 2024. You know, I I have been very transparent on that. However, I'm also – I like to think of myself as an intellectually honest person and I like to call them as I see them. Trump going to East Palestine – meeting with affected community members the way that he did, buying Mickey D's for the first responders, all of it is a very good look for him. I think it's politically very smart. And I cannot get over, I know this is politics and not substance, I cannot get over that the Biden administration was so incompetent that they allowed their malpractice to let Trump beat them yeah. to East Palestine because he didn't go immediately. He was just there, what, a couple days ago? He was there yesterday. They Was it yesterday? Yeah. They let him and, beat them to that scene yeah. after and, almost three weeks. And that's what, you know, when I said about uh, the Democrats try to say that Mayor Pete is their new it guy um, as a leader, but his instincts are so bad. President Trump's instincts from the time, even before he was president, right, he has good instincts for what people want to hear, what people need to feel, and he has great timing. Not just comedic timing. He does have that. Of course, we know that. He has good timing. And he is the one who could – like if he had gone to East Palestine the day after, now I would have said – now you don't want to take away from the response right. and that's too much. Right? Is he he making, didn't. Yeah. He went two and a half weeks later. Yep. And his instincts were excellent on that. Yep. I would say some of his uh, some of his instincts are bad yes, on a of number course, of things. Of but but he, you're right. He has a certain spidey sense about certain things. And the fact that they didn't close this avenue off to him and beat him to the punch is just <laughs> right. astonishing to me. So, I, you know, I, I actually understand why Biden went to Ukraine on Monday because he was heading to Poland. I'm fine with him going and to I Ukraine. Think that, and I think that, like, timing-wise made sense. But I also don't understand a White House who's getting ready for a re-election that is so off their game and not on a war footing that they didn't realize that he needed to go to East Palestine first. Not that he needed to, that he should have gone. And let me back up again. What are the president's instincts? His instincts didn't tell him to go. His instincts didn't tell him, I got to send Mayor Pete immediately or I got to get call a cabinet meeting. Imagine if he had called a cabinet meeting on Saturday morning. I want everybody in my office, 830 a.m. We're going to meet and I want to know from HUD, the Housing and Urban Development, mm-hmm. HHS, Health and Human Services, EPA. SBA, Small Business Administration. I want to know what the Department of Commerce. I want to know what each of you has as an idea to bring forward to this problem and i want answers by noon we were like damn all right but he He didn't didn't. do any of that he didn't do any of that bad bad instincts from him bad instincts from pete fortunately they have a secret weapon with excellent instincts in the vice president Uh, (laughs) (laughs) but i will say this and it's the last point since you mentioned ukraine 
I am glad President Biden went to Ukraine. I'm glad we're supporting the Ukrainians against the Russians. I've made no bones about that. But the juxtaposition of not going to Ohio and going over there, you can look at that series of decisions and say that doesn't look great, even if I support half of it, which I do. Exactly. I agree 100%. Dana Perino, I mean, you've got to run. You've got hey, a It's show not to like host. Mayor Pete was stuck in an elevator for ah, the entire time. Ah, he might as well have been. That's a good preview of my stuck in an elevator story from earlier today. We'll get to that later in the home stretch. Run off and do Thanks the five. We'll be watching. Okay. Dana Perino, always good to see you. And with that, let's take a quick break. We will return with much more of the Guy Benson Show, including, yes, that elevator story. It's all coming up. Stay with us. Back on the Guy Benson Show. Very glad to be here. Thank you for listening. Factor follow-up story. We told you about this, what, months ago when the scandal first broke, this Biden administration official, Sam Brinton. And let me just say in advance, I know that there are complicated pronouns. I believe it's a he, might be a they, regardless. This was a Department of Energy official who got a lot of press, a lot of ink, because this person is, I believe, gender non-conforming or non-binary. I don't think it was a trans situation. But because we play a lot of these games about identity and checking all these boxes, this individual, Sam Brinton, was high profile and was being touted by the administration, by people on the left. Then it turned out that this person was stealing luggage. Remember this? Like going to airports seeing expensive-looking luggage, and just taking the bag. It started with just one, and it was all on tape. I think this one was at Reagan Airport in D.C., where there was security footage. He sees a bag. He walks over to it, had not checked a bag on the flight. So they had that record. So he knew it wasn't his. He had not checked a bag, walked over there, took it, took the baggage tag off like with the name and everything, threw it in the garbage, walked away. So that was how the story broke. Then I think there was a second known incident in Vegas where this person had done the same thing. And at some point over the course of this story, which was admittedly kind of hilarious, this person was put on leave. I think felony, certainly criminal charges had been filed. Well, here's the latest. Headline from the New York Post, fashion designer claims Sam Brinton wore her clothes that were stolen from a D.C. airport in 2018. 2018. So this seems to be a years-long crime spree by Sam Brinton, who is doing this kind of stuff. The woman's name is Asya Kasim. She's a Tanzanian fashion designer. She's made her own clothing for years. And she shared on Twitter that she discovered photographs of this person wearing her custom clothing that she had packed in a missing bag that had been lost in 2018. This person has now been charged with stealing multiple pieces of luggage from two U.S. airports. So that was one in D.C., if I'm not mistaken, and then one in Vegas. The fashion designer tweeting the photos showing her in this dress and then showing Brinton 
in the same dress. There we go. The story says that they identify as non-binary. Quote, I saw the images. Those were my custom designs, which were lost in that bag in 2018, she told Fox News. He wore my clothes, which were stolen. And sure enough, I mean, you look at these articles of clothing, they are absolutely the same. So this person has been doing this now for years, it would appear. It's unbelievable. She has contacted authorities, so I'd imagine there will be new charges pending. Brinton, the story says, was released without bail and ordered not to contact any of the victims last week after a court appearance in Minnesota. Brinton appeared in Vegas court back in December, being released on $15,000 bond. Judge in that case told the former nuclear waste official, quote, to stay out of trouble. By the way, I'm trying to read this story in a way that makes sense. The they them makes it really hard. Like the story says that they appeared in court and the judge told them to stay out of trouble. Brinton faces up to five years in prison for the Minnesota theft. So it was that's what it was. Minneapolis, Vegas and now D.C. Up to 10 years jail time for the Vegas heist. I mean, I doubt we'll see this person in jail and we'll see which prison they go to. Male or female? I don't know. How does this work? But if the incidents keep piling up, there's no way this only happened three times. There's no way Brinton did this in 2018 and then never again for a few more years. This was, I bet you, a regular thing. This was like a weird kleptomaniacal fetish, it seems like. And this person rode that all the way to fame by wrapping it all with a bow on top of intersectionality and wokeness. And that's how they apparently got ahead. I wonder how many more people are thinking right now, you know what, I lost luggage in 2016 or the airline i bet you a lot of people have been harboring grudges against airlines you wonder what percentage of the lost luggage in america is due to this person alone the photographs often show him them they her in all sorts of different clothes that seem not necessarily intended for their body and now we know why (laughs) amazing It's a weird side fascination, but a fascination nonetheless. As warranted, we'll give you updates. They're in some real trouble. Put it that way. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show coming up next. Howie Kurtz is here. A lot going on in the news involving the media itself. We will cover all of those stories as soon as we come back. clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the final hour of the Guy Benson Show on this Thursday. I'm Guy Benson. Thanks for tuning in. Happy Hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. 
which is delicious and refreshing and alcoholic, so 21 plus only, always drink responsibly, thelongdrink.com for more information, including where it's sold near you. You can order online as well, thelongdrink.com. Follow us here at guybensonshow.com. That's our website, available to people of all ages for free, as is the podcast every day on demand, no charge after the show is over. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us at Guy Benson Show on social media as well, Twitter and Instagram. With us now, Howie Kurtz, host of Media Buzz on Fox News Channel every Sunday morning at 11 Eastern. Also has the hit podcast Media Buzz Meter. Follow him on Twitter at Howard Kurtz. Howie, good to have you back. Great to be back, Guy. Howie, I want to start with a story out of the media world that's a very sad one. Orlando, Florida, a TV journalist was killed in the process of reporting on an earlier shooting in that area. There had been a shooting at this address. There was a news media blitz with reporters and journalists and news vans and the whole thing. And apparently the assailant came back and then shot dead the journalist who was covering the story just absolutely horrific. I've seen a few of the clips of this guy's colleagues reporting on the air about his death, doing so very professionally, but still the emotion quite raw. What an awful and bizarre story. Just absolutely heartbreaking. You know, a reporter doing the job, uh, covering violence on the streets, and then winding up dead. I mean, it's every journalist nightmare. Also, a nine-year-old girl who happened to be nearby was killed. Mm. And, um, you know, I think it's a reminder. Uh, you know, a lot of journalists these days, you know, sit in their offices and are on Twitter and maybe send out some emails and make a couple of phone calls. But it can be a dangerous job, when, especially when you're doing street reporting or riot coverage, not to mention overseas war coverage in places like Ukraine. Um, but, you know, it is basically nearly impossible to maintain your composure where you, when then you're the reporter brought in to report the death of somebody who you love or a close colleague. I mean, no question about it. And the shooter is an accused career criminal. And the victim, the journalist, among other victims, is of Spectrum News Channel 13 in Orlando, Dylan Lyons, just 24 years old. Absolutely horrible. Howie, moving on, another media story that I want to get to that has blown up, I know, on Fox News Channel today. We cut into programming, as did some of our competitors, live for a period of time. This Murdaugh murder trial down in South Carolina, this is a family that has courted a lot of controversy through the years. Now there are multiple documentaries out, Netflix and HBO, about a series of deaths and tragedies around this family. Uh, now the patriarch, or at least the current patriarch, stands accused of double murder, killing his wife and his son. He was denying it on the stand. This was high profile to begin with, and then here you have this guy taking the stand in his own defense. I mean, I can sort of understand why this story, even though it's a local or regional news story, has captured some national attention because it's got a lot of drama and intriguing elements to it. Well, I have to be honest, I haven't followed the details all that closely. I do know it's become one of these national soap operas, and this is not to make light of it since we have two dead victims and apparently a lot of lying that went on uh, by the guy who was accused. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, it does seem to me that 
a lot of times, and we used to do this a lot more uh, before politics became so dominant, where whether it was a murder of some missing white woman or something like that, where everybody in the country would be debating it, would be debating the quality of the witnesses. Uh, and often it was a middle class or upper middle class white family as opposed to a different kind of family. But I do understand Look, uh, television networks in the business of getting ratings. There's nothing but ratings for this, particularly when the patriarch takes the stand. And I was looking at the headlines, the, the chirons that flash on the screen today, saying, well, once I started lying, I couldn't stop. And you can see where you could get very drawn into the uh, plot line here. Meanwhile, American audiences have been treated on multiple channels to interviews with the former grand jury foreperson in this case involving former President Donald Trump. And this is a case that is not yet resolved, and yet here she is, I guess, granting interviews all over the place to talk about it. I will leave it to the legal experts to decide whether or not she is actually imperiling any sort of indictment that might come down. I think the legitimacy of anything this grand jury does will be in question, given her choices and her conduct. But here she is out there on the air answering these questions I don't necessarily blame journalists for getting the interviews once she's granted them and asking the questions. It's still a very weird thing to watch. Oh, it's an absolute outrage. And I'm also sort of, well, I guess journalists have to ask the questions and see what they get. But the fact that this woman, let's let's face it, we know what she's doing. First, she talked to AP, and she talked to the New York Times, and then CNN, and then NBC. She's obviously loving it, 15 seconds of fame. Uh, And she is very broadly hinting, because the special grand jury recommended a bunch of indictments, that the former president of the United States is among them. And she's doing it very coyly, but making, well, you know, you won't be shocked. There's no strange plot twist here. And Anderson Cooper on CNN, to his credit, asked his legal analyst, what is this woman doing? Why is she all over TV? Well, then you could ask the question, well, why is CNN putting it on? Um, I do think it raises legal questions. And I do think that I've never heard of anything like this, even though a separate grand jury and the uh, DA down in the Atlanta area will ultimately have to decide on whether to bring any indictments in this case, not necessarily just against Donald Trump, uh, of the former foreperson of a federal grand jury talking about, quite openly, obviously, an active criminal investigation. It is mind-boggling. Yet it seems like whatever emerges from the process is going to be tainted, and not just in the minds of hardcore Trump defenders. How can you look at this woman's media tour and say this seems like an above-board process done by fair-minded, sober-minded people? I don't think you can, if you're honest about it. No, you absolutely can't. Uh, and again, as you said at the beginning, you know, maybe it affects the case, maybe it doesn't. If there is a case, you know, right. one of the reasons that grand jurors are not supposed to talk to journalists during ongoing investigations, in fact, it is illegal to do so, but technically she can say, well, the special grand jury's work is over, um, is to protect the reputations of those who might be questioned in the case or under investigation, uh, so that if there is no indictment, if there is no criminal charge brought, uh, they haven't been smeared. And I guess it's also just something about her demeanor. She's enjoying herself yeah. so damn much mm-hmm. that it is just uh, kind of sickening to watch. Well, even, and- even just looking at some of the screenshots of her on the air, there's, there is an immediate ick factor. There's something off. 
Yeah, along with her Pinterest account, which is very interested in witches and paganism and so forth. I mean, I don't know. She, I mean, she is who she says she is. She's not making any bones about it. But I don't know how it is not an an awful ethical breach to do this before the district attorney well, it is. has to make a final decision. Well, uh, of and, course it's an ethical breach on her part. I guess the question for you is, is this an ethical breach at all on the media's part for the outlets conducting the interviews? You know, I think I would have second thoughts about certainly airing this on TV. Uh, you know, I get it. You know, it's always the person who is the federal official, the former grand jury person, who uh, the, the conduct there is thought to be uh, – terrible but journalists are okay like journalists can you know we ask questions that we do we're trying to get but you know also what's happening guy is that many of the media outlets while maybe briefly touching on the weirdness of all this they are hour after hour after hour almost giddy with the prospect of what they now think will be a trump indictment and that may not happen but uh and and so you know it's sort of the journalists having it both ways yep they ask the questions they put it on the air and then they get to make it breaking news hour after hour after hour. It's kind of the resistance racket, and there is money and fame to be had there, I guess. Also a lot of really bad incentives on all sides of this. I think there have been a lot of bad incentives set up and exploited in our politics and our media now, especially in recent years, and this is just the latest chapter. Howie, I want to play for you a soundbite. This is from MSNBC. Andrea Mitchell, who is said to be one of their more serious journalists, she got the vice president for an interview. And here's the question, if I can even call it that, that she put forward to the vice president, cut 29. Let me ask you, what does Governor Ron DeSantis not know about black history and the black experience when he says that slavery and the aftermath of slavery should not be taught to Florida school children? I don't know what he knows and what he doesn't know, but I know this. Any push to censor America's teachers and tell them what they should be teaching in the best interest of our children in in partnership with the parents of America is, I think, um, wrongheaded. Okay, so first of all, Howie, this question, which I put in quotes, seems to just be Andrea Mitchell as a partisan Democrat inviting the vice president, especially in a racial context, to attack someone that they both mutually dislike and ideologically oppose. And in the process of asking that question, just sort of making a statement, please attack Governor DeSantis, she asserts, Andrea Mitchell does, that DeSantis, quote, says slavery and the aftermath of slavery should not be taught to Florida school children, which is absolutely, unequivocally false. In fact, those things are required to be taught in Florida schools. We have covered this whole controversy, the AP course and the proposed syllabus a lot here on this show. And the DeSantis team, I think quite rightly, put out essentially a memo to all of NBC and its affiliates saying, unless and until Andrea Mitchell apologizes and corrects the record, none of you will be getting any access whatsoever to our office or to the governor. In response, Mitchell yesterday on her show kind of walked it back a little bit, but not fully, cut 28. In my interview last Friday with Vice President Harris, I was imprecise in summarizing Governor DeSantis' position about teaching slavery in schools. 
Governor DeSantis is not opposed to teaching the fact of slavery in schools, but he has opposed the teaching of an African-American studies curriculum, as well as the use of some authors and source materials that historians and teachers say makes it all but impossible for students to understand the broader historic and political context behind slavery and its aftermath in the years since. All right, so she says, well, I, you know, I, I said this and I was imprecise about that, but historians and teachers say by opposing some of this, I would say, pretty radical ideological stuff in one unit of the proposed syllabus, which she also doesn't mention, but she sort of outsources her opposition to unnamed historians and teachers who say that by objecting to that unit, it makes it, quote, all but impossible for students to understand the broader context of slavery, which I think is absolute nonsense. It's not really an apology. It's not really much of a correction. And so far, Howie, DeSantis's office is saying uh, not nearly good enough. Our position stands and has not been satisfied yet. What do you make of this flap? Well, you know, Andrew Mitchell's question wasn't imprecise. It was wrong. It was flat wrong. And she needed to make a correction. I think she needed to make a stronger correction and not just then move on to, but if you look at it this way, it also could be construed as bad. And finally, she should have said, I regret the error. No expression of regret whatsoever for the governor of Florida, who is, of course, a very likely Republican presidential candidate. So I don't think it was well handled at all. And now DeSantis and his team are known for playing hardball with the press, and they know one way to get the attention uh, of the NBC and MSNBC is to say, we're going to shut you out unless we uh, get an apology. I don't know how that will end up playing out. But I do think when you make mistakes, and we all make them, you've got to say – I was wrong, and I regret it. Not, well, I was imprecise, I was this, I was slightly off, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, and then they trot out unnamed experts to basically regurgitate and recycle the exact same attack, as opposed to the attack coming out of Andrea Mitchell's mouth inaccurately. She's saying, well, other people say this makes it all but impossible to really properly teach the issue, which I think is hogwash. I think it's absolutely untrue. But we see this kind of laundering happen. In fact, NBC itself just did it, what was it, last week or the week before, where they got quote-unquote experts talking about how Nikki Haley's ethnic background wasn't authentic enough and wasn't going to play with people of color. It's like journalists just go and pick experts who agree with them and try to turn that into a news story. And it's obvious editorialization by journalists basically putting their own thoughts into other people's mouths and then printing them or putting them on the air. And these are two, at least in my mind, glaring examples of that phenomenon. Particularly upset about these attacks from the left, uh, Nikki Haley, about she's too Indian American. No, she's not Indian American enough. You know, uh, it's just beneath the pale. I mean, this is a woman of color who was a South Carolina governor who banned the Confederate flag from the state house grounds it wasn't an easy thing to do at that time. And yet people are, you know, not only uh, challenging her heritage, but some are even using her given first name, Nimrata, as a way of making fun of her or mocking her or denigrating her or whatever. And it's frankly pretty pathetic. Which brings us to Don Lemon and CNN and what he said about someone of Nikki Haley's age, obviously as an effort to attack her. I don't think he thought through the implications of what he was saying, even with two women sitting next to him and wondering what the hell is he talking about. Howie, just briefly here, that whole episode with the on-air moment, he was sort of magically off the air the next day. He went to some sort of training. He tweeted some apologies, apparently no mention of it on the air 
Not a great look for him and an awkward, awkward moment for that show, which is already having its own problems. No, the morning show has been a disaster so far. Uh, Don Lemon should have apologized on the air, and he should have apologized to Nikki Haley, not just to my colleagues and so forth. Uh, And so I think this formal training thing is a fig leaf. Uh, It's been a mess for CNN with this Lemon episode. Howie Kurtz, Media Buzz host every Sunday, 11 a.m. Eastern time on Fox News Channel. Howie, always appreciate it. Great conversation as always. We'll talk soon. Thanks, Guy. We'll take a break. We'll come right back. It's the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Forty-three years ago yesterday, the miracle on ice, Winter Olympics, Lake Placid, New York. I wasn't even alive yet, but I have goosebumps listening to the call. Al Michaels with that epic, epic call. Iconic. Do you believe in miracles? Yes. Team USA beating the Soviets on effectively home ice to advance to the gold medal game. They won the gold in the subsequent game. People sometimes assume The game against the USSR was for all the marbles. No, it was effectively the semifinals. And the Soviets were heavily favored. And in a moment where the U.S. needed a national shot in the arm, Team USA delivered. And that movie, Miracle, is fantastic. I always say, if there's one sporting event, I've said it before on the air, one sporting event I could transport myself back to of any sport at any time, it's that game. So... Couldn't miss the opportunity to play the call here on the show. I'm going to a hockey game tonight. Go Devils, beat the Kings. Back here on the happy hour, right after this, it's the Guy Benson Show. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Back here on the Guy Benson Show, the happy hour. In our first hour today, we caught up with Dr. Marty McCary, a Fox News contributor, medical doctor, public health expert, And he's been beating the drum on COVID and public health and public policy decisions for years. He's done a lot of it here on our show. And I would say even more vindication has come his way in the last few weeks. We had him here to talk about it. Here's part of our conversation with Dr. McCary. I kind of want to bring you on here today to do something of a victory lap, although it's one that's got to be still frustrating for you because some of the things that are finally being fully admitted in the public health community, in the media. These are things that you have been saying loudly, not just for a little while, but for years when it comes to COVID. One of them, probably the most prominent one, being the report just recently about natural immunity. And this was written up in The Lancet, and people were saying, oh, well, look at this, natural immunity, if you get COVID and and You survive COVID, which almost everyone does. That immunity is as good, if not better, than the immunity that comes with vaccines. And, you know, doctor, you and I have been having that exact conversation on this show. You've been all over TV and radio talking till you're blue in the face about this. I was looking at Wall Street Journal columns that you wrote in 2021 about this. And for the longest period of time, 
you were kind of treated by a lot of people like a pariah or an outcast or someone that shouldn't be listened to, dangerous purveyor of misinformation, or even if they sort of knew that you were right based on the data, it wasn't really what they wanted to talk about in terms of the narrative. And so it was just swept to the side. And now you have these quotes and these headlines like, oh, gee, look at this. And I wonder, is there a satisfaction that you feel at all? Or is it like way too little, too late to even be uh, vindicated this way? Well, I feel in, to some degree, first of all, Guy, thank you. And many doctors believed what I believed, but they were muzzled, intimidated, bullied at their academic institutions. A lot of this has come to light. The amount of secret praise that <clears throat> that I got and Jay Bhattacharya and Vinay Prasad and many people who are speaking about these issues, it's unbelievable because Many people felt this way in the medical community, but didn't feel comfortable going against this sort of mainstream. I mean, in California, heck, they have like a special court that they've set up to disbar you and take your license away if you disagree with the public health department. Crazy. Luckily, there's an injunction against it. But I feel like we lost. I feel like we fought like heck. We talked till we're blue in the face about these issues, but the kids were still shut out of school. Uh, toddlers were masked for nearly two years. Natural immunity was ignored. Lives were ruined. There were many mistakes of the pandemic, tremendous major miscalculations. But the ones that are unforgivable were that after the data were crystal clear, they continued to hold on to these anti-scientific policies. Right. And yeah. natural immunity, you know, that, that the big end-all study came out, as you referenced, two weeks ago. In the Lancet, they looked at all the studies done, and same thing with the masks, a review with all the studies done, and they showed um, natural immunity was more effective than vaccinated immunity, at least as effective, and the masks had little to no impact, essentially no meaningful uh, difference. All the energy we spent fighting on fighting masks, futile. All that energy, I fought to keep the masks off the kids. People fought to keep those kids' faces covered. All that face covering that we've seen, and it's still going on in some parts of the country, futile. What if they would have spent an ounce of that energy on addressing obesity or getting people outdoors and active and addressing mental health? We would have been a lot better. Well, let me just say this, though. In your defense, and to make you maybe a little bit more encouraged and optimistic— a lot of it was futile because there were people who didn't actually care about science or medicine. They cared about politics and agendas. And you weren't going to change the minds of those people. And unfortunately, those people were in charge in a lot of places. And if you want to sort of make it partisan, you don't have to. I will. It's pretty clear the parts of the country where people who claim to worship the science were the most hostile to actually following the science. That's true. And a lot of people... Adults and children were needlessly harmed uh, in the middle of already a terrible pandemic that killed a bunch of people. There was even more harm done, needless harm inflicted on these people. However, I think because of the work of folks like you and Dr. Bhattachara and some of the others, Dr. Sapphire, that reality, those truths, that data did break through for a lot of other people. My full interview with Dr. Marty McCary available online at GuyBensonShow.com. Also part of the free podcast every day on demand as soon as the show is over. No charge at all. 
GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch, my first day back from an overseas trip. Talked about that briefly at the top of the show. I almost didn't make it on air. It was a somewhat rattling experience in my New York City hotel earlier today. I'll explain when we come back. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on this Thursday. Guy Benson Show in New York today, tomorrow, and Monday. Doing some TV while I'm here, including over the weekend. Much more to share on that front tomorrow. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast is free on demand when the show is over every day. I will admit, I had a bit of a scary moment earlier today. So, got in yesterday took the train up to New York this morning, and unsurprisingly, our plan, our game plan for this home stretch today was Curious Christine. She wanted to hear all about the trip to Jordan. She had questions about camels and deserts and everything, and we'll get to those maybe tomorrow. But that was the plan for today. I was eager to answer her many questions. But then something happened, and that became the home stretch. I was not sure if I was going to make it to the air. Because in between our show planning meeting and coming on the air, I had a window of time. I thought to myself, okay, I've got about half an hour here. Let me walk two blocks over to my hotel and drop my bags. I called them. They said, yep, you can come check in early. I'll drop my stuff in the room. That will be efficient, and my bags will be there instead of having the luggage here in the studio, which I do somewhat regularly. But I had this period of time. About an hour, actually, is what I had. And so I went in. Hello, hello. Good to see you. Here's your room key. Walked over to the elevators. Hit the button for my floor. And my brain was going 100 miles an hour of all the things I needed to do today and tomorrow. There's just a lot going on, especially when you come back from a trip. You've just got a punch list. So I'm thinking about everything but the possibility of getting stuck in an elevator. And yet, we just had, and by we, I mean, it was just me. I was alone in this elevator, not a big elevator. We were starting to ascend maybe one second. And then there was this jolt, and it kind of bounced a little bit. There was no sound. There was no light flickering. Just something was wrong, right? You can tell I've been in so many elevators countless times in my life, I've never had this happen. And the little indicator of the floor was L for lobby, but then like two, and then it went blank. So I looked at my phone. It was running out of batteries. And I said, what do I do? Don't panic. Do I hit the little red need help button? Then it lights up if help is on the way. Can I talk to someone on the speaker? Do I have service on my phone in the elevator? I did. So because I had just called them a few minutes earlier to see if I could check in before the normal check-in time, it was the most recent call on my list. I just touched the screen, called back up, hit the operator button, and spoke to the guy that had just checked me. And I said, hey, Guy Benson, I literally walked away from you 
20 seconds ago, I think I'm stuck in this elevator. Because I was pushing the open door button. I was pushing the lobby button. I was pushing my floor button just to have anything change this weird limbo that I was in. And nothing was responding at all. So I said, oh, okay, um, we'll check it out. I said, okay. So I waited for a while, and I could hear, like, a little bit of tinkering. And then I called back, and he said, I've got security on it. Please stand by. So then the security guy was talking to me through the elevator. I thought we were still just almost exactly at lobby level. And he was sort of tugging at the door, and I could tell that the bottom half of the door was giving way, but the top half was stuck. So I was trying to push on the top half. It wasn't it wasn't moving. It wasn't budging at all. So he said, well, we've called the elevator company. They're going to send someone. I'm thinking, well, how long is that going to take? Like, I've got to get on the air. I never started to freak out, but I started going through a number of different contingency plans in my head. Like, okay, I've got my stuff with me, although not my computer and laptop bag. I left that in the studio. What do I have with me? Is there any way to charge anything in this elevator? No. I have 20% battery left on my phone. I have to be on the air soon. I have hockey tickets tonight. Like, what if I'm stuck for hours? Sometimes that's been known to happen. People get stuck for a long time. Like, when did I last go to the bathroom? Right? Like, all this stuff starts going through my head. And then you start to see what looked like a flashlight. And they had a few different people yanking on the thing. They said, they're on their way, but we're going to try to manually override the mechanism. They were trying. It kept getting stuck on the top half of the door, I'm like, can I do anything? They're like, no, probably not. Maybe step away from the door just in case. So I did. They said, well, the issue is you are not at the ground level. You're not at the lobby level, but you're also not at the second floor. You are in between the two floors. So I said, why don't you go up to the second floor and see if you can unlock or unstuck the door on the top half. One of you stay on the lobby level. The other one can go up because there were two guys working on it. And see if we can do it that way. So one of them went up there, and it wasn't quite working. So they said, we just have to wait for the professionals to arrive. I said, okay, when is that going to be? And I'm talking to them right through the door. They are right there. It's not like I'm suspended on the 36th floor or something, and no one can – like, they are right there which was somewhat comforting but also almost extra frustrating. There was not a sense of concern. I could see because of the light that there were plenty of ways that fresh air and oxygen could make its way into the elevator. I I wasn't worried about that. But it was also like you guys are right there. We're talking to each other from just inches apart. There's got to be an easy way to get me out of here. Can we just pry the damn thing open? Anyway, how long is it going to take for the pros to arrive? They said they're on their way. They're en route. So I then just went and sat down cross-legged in the corner of the elevator and just started updating my to-do list with the very top issue being get out of this damn elevator. I was texting and calling Christine, 
who I'm sure was taking everything right in stride. No, no freak out at all. No panicking because that's how she is, right? Cool as a cucumber, that cookie. But I had to keep her updated. And as we got closer and closer, I was like, oh, is this going to affect the show? Do we have a backup plan? Do we have a guest host that might need to come in? Could I call in from the elevator as a guest on the show? How long will this phone last before it dies? All this stuff is going through my mind. So finally they said, oh, they're two blocks away. They're almost here. I was like, okay, that's good. Then they're arriving just just a moment, Mr. Benson. Like, thank you for your patience. So sorry about this. They were very apologetic. I was like, no worries. I just need to get out of here. So the guy tries to work it from the lower floor, then realizes, nope, he's got to go up to the second floor. And you could hear him tinkering with different things and had various pieces of equipment. And then finally, he like manually was able to wrench the door mostly open. So me being me, I'm sitting on the floor. I've got my phone. I go to take a picture because this is the first time I'm, I've never seen an elevator from that perspective, not on one floor or the other, like having a little bit of daylight on one floor, then a little bit of daylight on the other floor. And then like the floor right in the middle, kind of almost at eye level. So I went to take a picture and the guy from the elevator company was worried that I was like filming him to get him in trouble or something, which of course I wasn't. Like I wasn't trying to get anyone in trouble. I just wanted out. This guy was coming to save me. So he closed the door on me. He goes, nope, if he's going to film me, you can get FDNY in here. And I was like, I just stood there and you could, I could tell he was like sort of flustered by me having my camera out and felt like I was trying to do some sort of gotcha to him, which I was absolutely not. So someone from the hotel is like, Mr. Benson, would you mind just putting your phone away? I'm like, my phone's away. So they said I couldn't climb out of the lower hole, if you can picture this. right? Imagine being suspended between two floors. They didn't want me crawling out of the lower hole because they were worried that if something wrong happened, I could like sort of slip and fall under into the shaft. So they wanted me to climb up out of the upper hole, which was like, I don't know, maybe a foot and a half tall. So they had me pass my luggage through piece by piece first. And then I was trying to figure out where I could plant my foot on the mechanism or even on the floor to then boost myself out. And it was hard. So then they had, at this point, probably four or five people. So they grabbed my arms and just pulled me through. And I got... A fair amount of elevator grease all over my clothes, which is not ideal. I don't know if that's going to come out. But like that was the least of my concerns at that point. And the guy who had come to fix the situation and rescue me from the elevator was sweating. He'd been working hard to get this door open, and he apologized for overreacting. And then he recognized me. He's like, wait, hang on. I watch you all the time. I love you. So he's a fan. He's a Fox fan. We shook hands. He was super nice. I think he was just disoriented, thinking like, you know, I was some person trying to get him in trouble, which, of course, was not the case. And I I thanked him very much. The hotel people were extremely apologetic. They had a bottle of water for me, so that was nice. And I made it. I called Christine, free at last. I'm on my way. Let's go do the damn thing. So I'm no worse for the wear except for looks like a couple garments might be uh, 
down for the count. I don't know if these jeans are going to make it, honestly. But I can get new jeans. I did not want to miss another show. You don't want to come back from an overseas vacation and your first show back you miss because you're stuck in an elevator. It almost happened, but I survived. Curious Christine has so many questions about this and about Jordan. We'll have to roll it all into like a bonus extended home stretch tomorrow for the Friday edition. I think we'll probably have to do that because we're out of time. I got to run. I might take the stairs. Back here tomorrow on The Guy Benson Show. We'll talk to you then. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.